You're listening to a message from Victory Dumaguete. Good day everyone. We have just concluded our series on Psalm 23. And before we embark on an exciting series next Sunday, we will have a serious break for today. And if you're someone who loves writing down titles for sermons, you can call this the task at hand. Perhaps this is the task at hand that we have as Christians in the midst of this pandemic. What we will do here today is we will do a quick section of exposition in the book of Matthew. And we will look into Matthew chapter 5. So I'd like for us to begin this now. And in order for us to understand Islam, we just explain a few things for a while. When you look at Matthew chapter 5, this is the stage in Jesus' ministry wherein he was going against the grain of culture in a sense that he was introducing what his kingdom is like. So you could safely say that this was like the inauguration or the ribbon cutting of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. In a sense that this is like the inaugural portion of his ministry. What we will look at here today is Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 down to verse 16. These verses can be found in the book of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is quite a lengthy one. And in order for us to understand this, we have to first think that There is one key word here that plays a crucial role the entirety of this text, and that is the word kingdom. As we start talking about this, like what I said, this is like the inaugural portion of his ministry. Any kingdom is described by these three things, pattern, power, and product. Let me repeat that. Any kingdom is described by these three things, pattern, power, and product. Let me just quickly look into that for a while. When you talk about pattern, you talk about the system in the kingdom, the way things are done in the kingdom, the principles that guide the kingdom. Every time you start talking about the power of the kingdom, you start talking about its influence, how sovereign the kingdom is. Of course, the product of the kingdom is the overall status, the exercise of that power, and the exercise of that pattern found in the kingdom. Now, Matthew chapter 5, that is what we have here today. Matthew chapter 9, sandwiched in these chapters, are actually the summary of the kingdom. And there are two major sections here. Chapters 5 and 7 are a collection of the sayings or the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ called the Sermon on the Mount. If you move forward to Matthew chapter 8 and 9, this is a collection of the stories mainly about His healing ministry. So in a sense, you kind of get the picture that chapters 5 and 7 talks about the pattern the principles in the kingdom, and chapters 8 and 9 is actually the demonstration of its power. We would see the product of all of these things. Now, let's go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 to 16. We're reading from the ESV. It says here, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, Jesus said, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, what do we have here? I'd like first to know that prior to this section, of course, is what we call the Beatitudes, the different saints of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can actually look into that later, the Beatitudes. And coming from the Beatitudes, Jesus starts shifting. He starts shifting 
by likening his disciples, his audience, to what? To salt and light. He starts likening his disciples to salt and light. Now, before we proceed, there is something that we need to accomplish first. I want to explain first that you know, Jesus' concept of salt and light, in order for us to break the familiarity that we have with these two things. Because I feel like every time we start preaching about something like this, the truth of the matter is, um, there's no other facet to this. Every time a preacher says, we're going to be talking about us being salt and light, there's no other facet to this. And we know where these kinds of preaching is leading, that we will be called by the preacher to exercise being salt and light to the world around us. Let's think of it this way. Think about a coach for a while. I think coaching is a tough job in a sense that it's difficult to do all the technicalities. And at the same time, you're also like a motivational speaker. It's especially more difficult if you will coach an underdog team. In the sense, you know, Jesus is coaching, at least in this section, perhaps the poorest of the poor. Coaching is not just all technicalities. It involves motivation. That's why during dugout, if you've seen this in movies or if you're an athlete, you know, that during sessions in the dugout, the coach would start to rally the team. He would say something like, today we will win a battle and stuff like that. We will uh, slay the giants and all of these things. You know, the coach will have to give a motivation to inspire his team to win the battle at hand. Now, psychologically speaking, that is quite helpful. It is important because it would boost the morale of the team. Now, imagine Jesus for a while. I'm not saying that you have to imagine him as a coach. But imagine Jesus and try to liken him to a coach. Imagine him talking about the kingdom, his very own kingdom, and he gives his disciples a fierce look. But instead of saying something of like grandeur, he starts telling them, you are the salt and light of the world. Knowing full well that they are fishermen, he could have said, something that would motivate them. As we start talking about the kingdom, I'd like for you to know that you are like the barracudas or the shark in the sea and stuff like that. But he didn't say any of those things. He simply said, you are the salt and light of the world. Now, there is a reason as to why Jesus said all of these things. Basically, that is what this sermon is all about, that we are called to be salt and light to the world around us. So here's the first question. The question is, why would Jesus use the salt and light analogy? Is that inspiring enough? Is that encouraging enough? Why would he use the salt and light analogy? Let me explain it this way. Let's say you're walking home one day, and suddenly on your way home, you saw a crowd, a thick crowd of people gathered in a certain home. You saw this yellow tape that says, police line, do not cross. And you start asking the people what happened and stuff like that. And of course, you know, if people cannot answer you, and when people tell you that they have no clue as to what's happening, what do you do? You start judging the situation based on the things that are being brought in. If a stretcher is brought in, you could assume that, oh, perhaps someone must have injured himself or herself. If a cadaver bag was brought in, you could say something like, oh, perhaps a murder took place. If someone brings in a soil, you could probably say that someone must have been trapped or something. One thing is clear. There is a predicament. You just know that there is a problem and there is a predicament. Now, I'm sharing that because I'd like for us to know that it is the same way with our world right now. We live in a world that is encountering or have encountered, is encountering, will encounter a predicament. 
people would say they want to cancel 2020. There is an accepted universal sentiment over every single thing that's happening over the past few months of this year. I'd like for us to know that as we begin talking about our role, the task that we have as salt and light, this is not restricted to the events that's happening around us, but this is universal in its application. This is timeless in its application in all generation at all times. Now first, I'd like for us to know that suffering is a universal reality. If there's one thing that connects us with other people, one of those things is suffering. It is a universal reality. Jesus didn't say that we are salt and light of the world thoughtlessly or mindlessly. There is a reason behind that. He was like saying being salt and light are the tools that we need in order for us to minister to the people in this broken world. First, he says, we are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown and trampled under people's feet. In verse 13, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. In verse 14, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Take note, it says, you are. You are the salt. You are the light. It does not read, you will become or you will have to act like you are a salt or you are a light. Jesus simply said, he was looking at his disciples, and he said, you are. Now that you have submitted yourselves in my kingdom, I'd like for you to know that you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Meaning to say, I'd like first to know that if we would want to translate these words to every single one of us here today, it gives us a picture that this is nothing to do with our potential. This is who we are. Jesus simply said that we are the salt and we are the light of the world. This is not about our potential. This is about our being. This is not even about just our doing. In its simplest term, being salt and light is living out who you really are. It's basically talking about living out who we really are. If we are integrated, associated, if we walk closely with Christ, then we are the salt and light of the world. Having said that, let's talk about salt for a while in its general terms. When the metal sodium is combined with a nonmetal chlorine, it forms an ionic compound known as sodium chloride or salt as we know it. Now, what is salt good for? We know that you know salt is good for several things. During their time, they don't have the fridge that we have in our homes. And you know, because of that, salt is used by everyone during the time to what? To preserve meat. What people would do is that they would salt the meat to prevent it from decaying. So salt acts or was used as a preservative. Salt was used as a preservative. Not just that. It is also used for flavor enhancement. Salt is used to enhance the flavor of any food. In our time, people would say that the world requires 40 million tons of salt every single year. It's selling quality, it's seasons, and makes food tasty. That's why there are a lot of variations of this. In the Philippines, we even use magic sarap. As much as they have several uses in our time right now, they have several uses then. Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 4 even records that you know what, a newborn babies were rubbed with salt. 
We know this story where Elisha treated a bad water supply in Jericho with what? With salt. It has been of good use ever since before. In fact, the English word for salary comes from the Latin word salarium, derived from the word salt. So this is very simple. What Jesus was essentially saying when he said, you are the salt of the earth, he was simply saying that you as Christians, you as people who belong to my kingdom, I'd like for you to know that you ought to preserve and enhance the things or the world around you. The sphere of influence that you have, parents in your homes, Christians in the workplace, students in the classroom, your role is to preserve and enhance the things of God in those sphere of influence that He has given us. Allow me to further explain this for a while, at least in a historical perspective. Let's talk about Christendom. As an example, it is important for us to know it's useful for us to integrate biblical history with world history. I mentioned that the Sermon on the Mount is all about kingdom. And we said that a kingdom is described by these three things, pattern, power, and product. So Christendom is actually a product. It is a product of the demonstration of the power of the kingdom. It is a product of the pattern that we see or the system or the principles that are exercised in the kingdom. Christendom was a product. Let me explain it for a while. From the first century apostles up until the 18th century, when Christians took to heart, Jesus has called to be salt and light to the world. Christendom was the product. Christendom can be explained in several ways. For example, one is the church gradually became a major player or a defining institution in the empires during that time. There was the presence of Christian theocracy in a sense that government were founded upon and upholding Christian virtues and values and principles. Everything was held together and Christianity was at the forefront. And these things happened when Christians took to heart the call to become the salt and light to the communities around them, to the cities where God has placed them in. The church has become so powerful. In fact, if you start looking at that in a more tangible way, hospitals or the great universities in the world, all of these things were founded by Christian missionaries, by Christian people. If you start thinking about the founding of the Philippines, this was established not just expansion of the kingdom in mind, but also with the thought of establishing Christianity in this part of the world. Christianity has successfully permeated culture, arts, philosophy, science, and all of these things. All because the kingdom forcefully advanced during this time, when Christians stood to heart the call to be salt and light to the world. In places where there's exploitation of women or cannibalism is present, every time Christianity is ushered in, we know that these things would actually stop. And we could actually attribute this in the desire and the drive and the passion of Christians to be salt and light to the neighboring cities, neighboring countries around them. And of course, you know, the 18th century, when the 18th century was ushered in, we actually know what happened. The age of enlightenment or the age of reason happened. And the enlightenment included a range of ideas centered on human reasoning as the primary source of authority and legitimacy over everything. Because of this deviation, we know what happened. Cultures in the world started spiraling down once again. As a Christian or even a non-Christian, 
about their view of the world right now and both groups of people will tell you that the world is actually disintegrating. Meaning to say the world to a certain extent is falling apart. The world is decaying. There's a lot of predicament, problems, crisis, uh, circumstances in the world that's happening right now. In verse 13, it says here, But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Here is the thing about salt. You know, salt has elements in it that if you remove it or take it away, it is no longer salt. And that is the thing that we have to understand. In the same way for us Christians, there are certain characteristics or characters that should be present in our life and should not be replaced. If you look at the Christian man, what are these properties? It is quite interesting because these properties can actually be found in the Beatitudes. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 to 10, it says here, Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, those who are peacemakers, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Take note, these are all a state of being rather than doing. So if we have as Christian these properties in us, we will never lose our saltiness. Then we can always fulfill and walk out the mandate that we have to preserve and enhance the culture around us. We have to take note though that we are only a salt if we maintain our difference from the world around us. If we become so diluted in our character, if we become like the world, then we will not be able to reach the world. The second thing is, Jesus said, we are the light of the world. It says in verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. Have you been in utter darkness? You know what it feels like. The kind of darkness wherein there's no flickering light whatsoever. It's a scary place to be in. The studies would say that if you stay for 48 hours in pitch black environment, it could actually cause insanity. Other darkness can cause vertigo or disorientation. You would feel choked. Now here's the fact. The Bible is very explicit about this. That we have to understand that the state of our world right now is described by these two words. There's darkness and decay. There is darkness and decay. Come to think about that for the world left to its original state will go into disintegration. Hair will turn gray, flowers will wilt, borders of rock will turn to sand. Meaning to say things left to themselves will disintegrate, will fall apart. And it is the same thing with the morality or the practice of the world where we live in right now. Things left to themselves will vastly disintegrate unless there is an intervention. And the intervention that God is looking into is His very own people. Let's look at this question for a while. What kind of light are we? Jesus likened us to a lamp. It is quite interesting because he did not say that we are like the sun or we are like the star in the sky. He likened us to this kind of light, which is a lamp. And here's the thing. A lamp cannot produce light. 
all it can do is it can hold light. Meaning to say, its light is always just a derived light. John chapter 8 verse 12, again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Our light is a borrowed one. It is a reflected one. At the end of the day, we derive this light if we walk closely with God. See, the only way for us to be a light to the world around us is if we derive this same light from our communion with God. What are the implications of these things, of these two things when practiced in our culture and community? I'd like for us to know that salt and light here should work hand in hand. You cannot choose to be salt and not to be a light. You cannot choose to be a light and not be a salt. Why? Because light will show you the decay that you ought to salt. That's why Jesus said in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word good here is either agathos or kolos. Agathos simply means good in quality and kolos means beautiful. And that is the word that is used here. It is the word kolos. In verse 14, it says here, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. We have to understand that you know, a city is a corporate place. It is a place where it has different kinds of communities in it. Meaning to say, when Jesus was saying these things, he was saying that this is not just referring to one Christian household. This is not just talking about the victory group leader or the pastor. This is talking about every single one of us that we have been called as a community, as church communities to be salt and light to the world around us. A grain of salt will not season anything and many lamps are better than one lamp. In short, we have to do this salting and lighting together as a church community. The church should always be missional. God has called you and me individually and corporately to be a salt and light to the communities around us. Now, having said all of those things, I want to look into some practical applications that we could have as we start exercising being a salt and light to the communities around us. Ed Stetzer has given us some practical questions that we could look into as a guide for us to exercise our saltiness and being a light in this current situation that we're in. First question that he starts asking us is this, what are the things that you can celebrate, promote, and emulate in this season? During this time of crisis, what are the things that are worth celebrating? What are the things that are worth emulating? What are the things that are worth promoting? With all the ridiculous and accusatory stuff all over social media, floating around social media, what are the things that we could actually celebrate? What are the things that we could share? Big ones and small ones. Secondly, what is missing that we can contribute? I know that we might be thinking about Providing masks and PPEs and all of these things. These things are really good. Okay, that is us being a salt and light to the world around us. That could be something like alcohol or face mask or what. But at the bottom of it, I'd like first to know that there is something 
that the world desperately needs that we have with us. And that is hope. Third one is, what evil can we stop or confront? Of course, the obvious thing is, the evil one here is the coronavirus itself. But there are more things that came out because of this crisis. Perhaps on a more immediate level, yes, we will pray for the coronavirus to stop. But on a more immediate level, we can stop what? We could stop anger and cynicism. That is one thing that we can do. We can stop from forwarding unhelpful messages or accusations on social media and stuff like that. Or perhaps we can stop pornography from infiltrating into our homes because people are becoming so idle in these times. Perhaps the evil that we should stop is domestic abuse in our own homes. And the final question is, what is broken that we can restore? Among the brokenness exposed in our culture by this crisis is loneliness and self-isolation. And imagine what a call would do. Imagine what a message would do to people who are experiencing all of these things. People are broken because they have lost their jobs. People are broken because they are feeling so fearful and anxious. And at the end of the day, God looks at us as to what we're going to do. And people look to us and will wait for us as to what we are going to do. And perhaps the last question is, how often are we unleashing the power of prayer in this season? If we take to heart the call to be salt and light to the communities around us, the ultimate result is found in verse 16. It says here, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You just heard a message from Victory Dumaguete. For more messages like these, or to access other resources, please visit victorydumaguete.org or like our page on Facebook.